few weeks ago, I asked you all the question, what if Jesus wrote to church on Randall Place a letter? And I asked you to fill out a few little sheet of paper to talk about um, how would Jesus describe himself to our church? What would he commend us for? What would he say, hey, well done, good job. And what kind of things would he say, but I have this against you? And what kind of promises might Jesus give to us? You'll notice as we go through Revelation chapters 2 and 3, we're going to see that as kind of as a formula of the letters that Jesus writes or has John write to the various churches. He says, I am, he describes himself, he, uh, he then says, and you did, I know your deeds, you've done these good things, and then he says, but I have this against you, then he gives them a remedy for their, for their, uh, for their sin, and then gives them a promise. And so I, I took the the papers, the, the the little questionnaire that many of you filled out, and I put together kind of a composite, I guess you could call it, of a letter that Jesus might write to the church on Randall Place. So here's my composite letter of Christ to the church on Randall Place. To the angel of the church on Randall Place, the great physician and the one who wields the two-edged sword says this, I know your works, how you love my word and strengthen the saints across the world to be faithful to do what I have spoken, that through faithful teaching you are growing my people in love and good works. But I have this against you, that you are complacent when it comes to reaching new people with the gospel that saves. Remember the joy you had when you were first born again and be diligent to reproduce that joy in others. I am the one who causes growth by that I have called you to sow the seed. If you will obey my voice, you will be empowered by my spirit with great joy, and you will not be touched by the second death. I thought that was pretty good. I think I, I, think I agree for the most part. So we come to the first of seven letters written to the seven, seven churches in Asia. And we will see, one of the things I hope we will do is that we will not leave this as, oh, a letter written to an ancient church. It was written to an ancient church, and an ancient church received it. But I think that we also need to understand that in these letters, we need to look to see, is there a message to the church on Randall Place for us as well? Is there anything in here that might be applicable to us as a church? These are written to churches, but then we also would be wise to say, is there something in these letters that applies to me as an individual? So we want to look at these letters from a variety of perspectives. We want to look and see, is there, what did it mean to the original church to whom it was written? Then we might want to try to bring that forward. Is there something here that is meaningful, that is important for us as people in this church that we need to apply either to keep doing, if there's something good that's being done, we need to keep doing it. If there's something that Christ condemns them for that calls them to repent of, do we need to repent of? And we also need to lay hold of the promises that Jesus gives to those who hear his voice. And so, just real briefly, I'm going to give you a general overview of 
of the seven letters because it's really easy for us to separate them and not consider that not consider chapters two and three as a whole, but to just to break it up into seven separate things. And uh, I think we would be wise to realize that there is a unity and that there is a cohesiveness and that there is a a unifying theme running through these letters. And so I have written, I have borrowed this from uh, James Hamilton, who has written a wonderful, wonderful commentary on the book of Revelation. And uh, so... He states, and I affirm, that these, the overview of these letters is, for the glory of God, Jesus changes the churches to be, charges the churches to be zealous for the gospel, reject false teaching, and live in a manner that corresponds to the gospel. These letters are written to seven churches. We see that they are written to Ephesus, to Smyrna, to Pergamum, to Thyatira, to Sardis, to Philadelphia, to Laodicea. These were all churches in the time in which John lived. But I also believe that it is written to churches of all time. And the reason we say that is because each of these letters ends with the phrase, He who has an ear to hear, hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Plural, in other words, he writes to the church at Ephesus and then says, he who has an ear to hear, hear what the Spirit says, not to the church at Ephesus, but to the churches. And so perhaps if we read our letter to the church on Randall Place, he would say, he who has an ear to hear, hear what the Spirit says to the churches. This might apply to other churches, not just to the church on Randall Place. So these are written to specific churches, but they are written to all churches at all times. I think that is significant in the number seven. And uh, we have discussed that. So seven churches has to do with the, the fulfillment or the completeness of the churches. And I would say that throughout history, all churches can be admonished and be encouraged by these letters. And it is to be heeded, these letters are to be heeded by those of us who are at the church on Randall Place. Remember the promise of blessing in the third verse of this of the first chapter. <coughs> Blessed are those who read this letter, who hear this letter, and who obey what's in this letter. And so we would do well to obey because the ones who obey are the blessed ones and we all want to be blessed. So let's read our our text today and then we'll go back and take a, a closer look at it. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, the one who holds the seven stars in his right hand, the one who walks among the seven golden lampstands, I know your deeds and your toil and perseverance and that you cannot tolerate evil men and you put to test those who call themselves apostles and they are not and you found them to be false and you have perseverance and have endured for my name's sake and have not grown weary but I have this against you that you have left your first love. Therefore remember from where you have fallen and repent and do the deeds you did at first or else I am coming to you and will remove your lampstand out of its place unless you repent. 
Yet this you do have, that you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Well, we begin this letter with Jesus declaring his authority. But before we look at that, we should maybe take a brief have a brief understanding of the, the city of Ephesus to which um, John wrote and to which this church existed. Probably Ephesus was a fairly good-sized town. There probably were numerous house churches in, the Ephesus, in Ephesus at this time. And um, Ephesus was known for its great dedication to the goddess uh, Artemis. She was, the, uh, the hunt, she was a huntress. And uh, this was where that cult had its primary location. There was a massive temple um, that you can see up here. I have uh, the top picture is some of the remains of the temple. I think Simone has actually been there and uh, seen that. And so it was also a, an ep- economic uh, Boon for the for the town, this worship of Artemis, and we find that and you see that especially in uh, Acts chapter nineteen through twenty three, when uh, the Christian faith came to Ephesus, and although there was intolerance towards the Christian faith, the, the thing that really upset everybody is when it started to affect their pocketbook, and when people started turning away from the goddess Artemis and all of the craftsmen and tradesmen and all of the people who had a financial interest in this particular um, religious belief, well then, all of a sudden, this became a big issue and we've got to put down the Christian faith because it is cutting into our pocketbook and how many know that the Christian faith will many times create havoc or wreak havoc when it starts to affect our pocketbooks. We, we will tolerate it, put up with it, or not mind it so much until it actually costs me something. And so the, the, the city of Ephesus was a city that was engaged greatly into the worship of this Greek goddess and that it brought great financial um, well-being to the city. The city also was known for its library. It was an academic center. And so there was great learning going on and had this impressive library. The bottom, uh, the bottom picture here are the remains of that, that library. Um, I think we can see the front of it. And so, so it was a place where there was religious diversity and pluralism, and where primarily the, the, the primary religious deity was of Artemis, but at the same time it was an academic center and a place of great learning. And it is to this city then, or to the churches who are in the city, that Jesus writes, the one who holds the seven stars in his right hand, the one who walks among the seven golden lampstands, says this. Jesus, we learned from last week that the seven stars in his right hand, the seven angels, the seven churches, and the seven golden lampstands are the seven churches. And so we have Jesus beginning this letter by saying, number one, I am the authority over all things, even the hosts of heaven. There is nothing outside of my authority. I am also the one who dwells in your midst. I am Jesus who dwell in your midst. 
I wonder if we would worship differently if we really believed that Jesus was in the midst of his church. I wonder if we would worship and, and be act differently if we really had a concept that Jesus is walking in the midst of his church. In the midst of the church on Randall Place, would you say the same things to one another if Jesus, if you really, really thought Jesus is here? I mean, I know you believe that Jesus is in the midst of this church. But if a dignitary or a person of great importance were here, we might act a little differently. We might put on our, be on our best behavior. The greatest dignitary of the universe is in our midst. He says, I walk amongst my churches. I walk in the middle of them. I walk to and fro. I'm in their midst. Jesus, right now, at this very moment, is in the presence of his people at the church on Randall Place. Do you believe that? Amen. I know your deeds. Jesus goes on and he lists nine positive things about the church at Ephesus. And I'm just going to summarize them and put them into two broad categories. Here's what I know. I know your good deeds and I know your doctrinal faithfulness. That's what I know. I put this as deeds and creeds because it rhymes. I know your good deeds. Deeds such as, I know your toil, I know your perseverance, I know your work, I know that you're bearing up in Christ, I know that you have stamina. I know that pressure has come against you to deny my name, and you don't. You continue to stand firm in my word, and you continue to run the race, and you continue to bear up under this great pressure to compromise and to compromise truth. I see it. I know it. You have endured for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. You have perseverance. You cannot tolerate evil men. I also know your good creeds. That is, I know that you are doctrinally sound and that you cannot tolerate evil men. You have people who come in your midst who claim to be apostles, but they're just pseudo-apostles. They're false apostles. You put them to the test, and you found them to be wanting, and you've cast them out and said, you're not an apostle. You discern between good and evil, and you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans. Now, we'll get into this, to the, what the Nicolaitans taught um, in future weeks, but just a, a brief quick overview, and more likely than not, what the Nicolaitans taught there, the Nicolaitans seem to be aligned with the teaching of Balaam, and we'll cover that in greater detail coming up, but more, like, more likely than not, the Nicolaitans taught some sort of um, doctrine that included idolatry and sexual immorality. Basically, you approve idolatry and sexual immorality, and the Nicolaitans 
are mentioned a couple of times in these letters. And Jesus says, you hate their teaching. I hate their teaching. Actually, I hate their deeds. I guess we can begin with this question. Do we hate the things that Jesus hates? And so we have this church in Ephesus. They are persevering. They are enduring. They are toiling. They are bearing up for the work of Christ in the name of Christ. They put to test. They, they doctrinally put to test those who claim to be, be Christ followers. And they judge them by God's word. And if they do not align with God's word, they have nothing to do with them. This is sounding like a pretty good church. And it, I think it actually is a pretty good church. And discernment, I think, was especially important for this church in Ephesus. Paul had warned them earlier that they were going to need to watch for doctrinal corruption entering into their church. We read in Acts chapter 20, verse 30, Paul is leaving the, the, the area of Ephesus and he's speaking to the leaders of the church and this is what he says to them. I know that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves, men will arise speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after them. This is Paul's words to the leaders of the church in Ephesus. A number of years earlier, he says, listen, I'm on my way. Paul was the founding pastor. But I know Paul's leaving. And he says, I know that after I leave, leave, savage wolves will come in. They will not spare the flock. And from among you, notice where they come from. They come from among you. This is not some weird cult from outside the church. This is not like somebody coming in from Scientology and saying, hey, we want to uh, be part of the church on random place. We'd say, no, you guys are nuts. This is people who come in and have the appearance of being a Christ follower, but teach heresy. And it's not just flat out blatant heresy. It is couched in Christian terms. They use terms like Son of God and redeemed by the Lamb. And they use uh, all kinds of the cross of Jesus and the Son of God and Trinity. And they use all these things that would cause us to say, yes, they are believers. This is who Paul is warning about. We also see this in um, 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 3 through 4. As I urged you upon my departure from, from Macedonia, remain on at Ephesus, so that you can instruct certain men not to teach strange doctrines, nor pay attention to myths and endless genealogies, which give rise to mere speculation rather than furthering the administration of God, which is by faith. It seems like people are coming in and teaching all kinds of different ways to be saved. Strange doctrines. This is what he tells Timothy. Again, this is not folks from outside of the church who believe some weird thing. This is people from rising up from within the church are coming in and saying, we are apostles of Christ. We are followers of Christ. We hold to the truths of Jesus Christ. And they teach what is false. 
And so Paul's warnings have borne good fruit in the people at the church at Ephesus. And he commends them for their protection of sound doctrine and discernment. These false teachers have come in, they've claimed apostleship, but after examination they were judged to be false. And these teachers are very difficult to detect because they operate under the guise of a Christian. There's a lot of things out there that pass for the Christian faith today that are not Christian. And there are a lot of teachers out there who, whose materials are sold in Christian bookstores and who many Christians will follow and say, yes, they are great teachers and they are followers of Christ and they are not. Notice what this church does. They say you're false. Today, if we do that, that's unloving, isn't it? If I were to claim somebody to be a false teacher, or we would be like, oh, you can't do that. Why would you do that? That's, that's unloving. That's unkind. So I'll tell you, when Joyce Myers tells you that Jesus Christ was, had to be born again in hell, and that he purchased our sins in hell and was born again there, she's a false teacher. I don't care how popular she is. I just don't care. That is absolute, heretical, blasphemous, wrong teaching. And when Kenneth Copeland tells you that God is a man about six foot four with a hand span of a certain... That is absolute blasphemy. And when people get up there and they tell you, like Fred Price and some of these guys tell you, that your words have authority to produce and make God do your will, they are anathema. And unless they repent, they will be lost. Am I unloving? I hope not. Am I just trying to say, oh, look how great we are? I hope not. But I am saying, there is teaching out there by people who are called Christians and whose books are bestsellers, and maybe even we have some of them in our libraries. But this is false. Your words do not create reality. God is the author of all things. And word faith theology is absolute heresy. Unfortunately, it's blared on every Christian television station as truth. And it's wrong. God is the Lord of all, not your words. You do not manipulate God. You bow before the Holy God and you call upon Him to have mercy on your soul. These, usually these false teachers in the days that John is writing, they were detected upon examination of their behavior and their teaching. And you can see this in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, 1 John chapter 4. And I also put a, uh, a reference down there from the Didica. The Didica, you should be well aware, is not scripture. Right? It is not the inspired word of God. But I put it down because it is a very, very old document. It was probably in existence the earliest date. Uh, was late first century, um, perhaps middle of the second century. 
that there's a very strong possibility that it existed when John was writing this letter. And it is a window into the worship of the early church. If you read the Bible, there's not a whole lot that talks about the worship of the early church. I mean, we really don't know what their worship service looks like. But the Didica gives us a little bit of uh, idea of what the early Christian community looked like. Again, it is not scripture. We do not look to it as the inspired word of God. But it is an ancient document that gives us great insight into what the people of the day were thinking and how they lived and how they worshipped. And we see how they were very diligent. They had a very strict, very strict agenda on how to point out a false prophet and how to point out false teachers. And you can read it and they say, if the, if the teacher does this, this, and this, get rid of them. So I put that down. You can find it online. Um, very interesting, very interesting document. Now, the Ephesian church was not real it was not real popular even then to claim that Christ is the only way and adherence to biblical truth put them at odds with their culture Robert Wilkins in a book called Remembering the Christian Past says appeal to religious pluralism is the oldest and enduring criticism to Christianity and they were also criticized for believing that Jesus is the only way. Today we live in a, in a world that says, how can you say and be so arrogant as to believe that Jesus is the only way? That's just arrogant. It's as arrogant as saying that two plus two is four. Because it's true. Truth isn't arrogant, it's truth. Just as in Ephesus it was hateful to say that Jesus is the only way, today it is hate speech to say that Jesus is the only way. So the false teachers come from within and try to teach some sort of compromised faith and some sort of compromised reality. The Ephesian church said, no, we're going to stand against that. So at this point, we might be thinking, this is a pretty good church. Nine good things are said about this church. Paul was its founding pastor. Timothy and John were preachers at the, at the Ephesian church. I mean, really. How would you like to have be the next pastor? <laughs> well, you're pretty good, but you're no Paul. <laughs> Even Timothy. Yeah, well, Timothy, you're all right, but you know, you're not Paul. You're not an apostle of Jesus Christ having seen the Lord like John. Were you on the Mount of Transfiguration? Because our former pastor was. <laughs> Did you ever see Lazarus rise from the dead? The guy who was here before you? <laughs> yeah, he saw that. Saw the risen Lord. How about you? It's like, well, no. Pretty good church. But I have this against you. That you've abandoned the love that you had at first. 
despite all of their accolades and their adherence to right doctrine. I have this against you. You've abandoned the love that you had at first. There are a whole lot of ideas as to what this means. What does it mean to abandon the love that you had at first? Or people say, well, of course, it's abandoning their love for Christ. I think there's, that's probably true. I've heard some people say, well, it's abandoning their love for evangelism. Well, I suppose if you love your brothers and you love the lost, that you will evangelize. And so I'm going to kind of paint this with a fairly broad stroke. The first and great commandment is to love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your mind, and with all of your strength. And the second is likened to it, and that you will love your neighbor as yourself. On these hang all of the law and the prophets. The two primary commandments that God has called us to is to love him above all things and to love our neighbor as ourselves. This was a church that was orthodox and was doctrinally sound. And in its doctrinal orthodoxy seemed to no longer have a great love for their Lord and for their brothers and sisters. They were just concerned with making sure that every T was crossed and I was dotted and every jot and tittle was in its right place. And that, that can happen. And we look at people as whether or not they are in line. We, we view them through a doctrinal period rather than are they a person who is created in the image of God. It's very easy to do that. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your moments. The great and foremost commandment, the second like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. We are to love God. There's been a passage that I've just been really enamored with for the past, I don't know, six months. It's in Deuteronomy chapter 28, 4-7. I'm not going to read the whole thing, but it comes in this area where God is... is uh, talking about both blessings and curses to Israel. And he said, you know, if you'll do these things, you'll be blessed. And if you don't do or do some of these other things, you'll be cursed. And in the, the mention of the curses, he says this, because you did not serve the Lord your God with joy and a glad heart for the abundance of all things. In other words, it wasn't so simply the keeping of the commandments of God. It wasn't simply doing what God said. It wasn't simply not doing what God said not to do. There was another component. We can go through the motions, folks. And we can do stuff that is right. Or not do stuff that is wrong. But because you did not serve the Lord your God with joy, and a glad heart for the abundance of all things God has abundantly given to us. And when we come here, we can go through the motions, 
And we can come to church and sing the songs and, and stand and once in a while we clap our hands and you know, we're not a real expressive church. That's fine. And we can do all of the stuff. We can give our money and put it in the plate. We're serving the Lord with joy and a glad heart. Or are we just coming to church because that's what we do on Sundays? Has our love for God grown cold? Is it a chore to do what pleases Him? And are we just going through the motions? Simone and I make it a habit to read through the Bible in a year. Some of you do the same thing. There are times, I, I will admit, that, that I read my Bible reading for the day to check it off the list. And I just get it done, and I go about my day, and I can put it on my little schedule that I got my reading done, and I've read through the Bible in a year. I did that this morning. I was reading, and I got to the end of a particular passage, and there was something a little confusing that I didn't quite... Yeah, it wasn't going to be anything all that difficult. I just had to go back to the beginning and read it. I thought, I'll just go on. It's like, no, I'll find out what, what it is that you, you misunderstood here. When I come into it, it's, I have to ask, Lord, allow me to read this with a heart that loves you, to learn you, to know you. Because it's just really simple to go through and read stuff. Even stuff we like, I'm not even talking about the genealogies that can be, be a challenge or the numbering in the book of Numbers. I'm talking about even good stuff. You know, part of our readings in the book of Acts, and I can read right on through it. And my mind is somewhere else. But I don't do the motions, and my little calendar says I'm up to date. And you can look at my calendar and say, boy, he's diligent. He's reading the Bible every day. He's up to date. I don't need to be up to date, but a desire is that I would love God, that I would read His Word because I love Him, that I would learn to spend time saying, Lord, what do you have to say in this? It's easy to come to church and just do the things. That is our church attendance, which is nice, orthodox, truthful things. We should gather corporately. Does our heart grown cold to the things of God? You've abandoned the love that you had at first. Because there was probably a day you couldn't wait to be in the presence of God. There may have been a day when you couldn't wait to, to spend time in prayer with our God. There may have been a day when you couldn't wait to be in the presence of God's people. There may have been a day when you had a heart on fire for the things of God. And now it's just get up, put on your Sunday best or not, and come to church. We are also to love others. Love your neighbor as yourself. Let me tell you one of, the, one of the big challenges of being a pastor or even being a leader in a church. I'm not supposed to tell you by pastor code number 342, subsection C. So I'm going to violate that statute. 
it is easy to see people as human resources and ways to fill needs. It's real easy. It's easy to look out and say, well, there's somebody who can fill the nursery next week, and there's somebody who can mow the lawn, and there's somebody who can do whatever. It's real easy to fall into that. As leaders of this church, we would do well to guard against treating people as mere human resources. Yes, we may need at times somebody to, to mow the lawn or paint the church or <clears throat> hang a door or fill in at the nursery or any of those things. But we need to see as people much more valuable than are you a nursery attendant. Are we meeting one another's needs? Or are we pretty well, pretty consumed with our own lives? Have our differences with one another caused disruption in our fellowship? Well, I like so-and-so, I'm just not going to be around them. Or I'm not going to go to the fellowship because I'm out of sync with so-and-so. It's time we get things right. Well, I love them, I just don't want to be around them. Maybe there's a time for that. But maybe it's also just an excuse. I have this against you. You've abandoned the love that you had at first. And then Jesus tells us three things. He provides for us three remedies. Don't you like the fact that Jesus says, well, here's what's wrong and here's how you fix it? A lot of us are really good at pointing out things that are wrong. Very few of us are very good at saying, well, now here's how you fix it. Jesus says, here's how you fix it. There's a three-step remedy. First of all, remember. Remember from where you have fallen. Remember the height from which you have fallen. Remember. Remember is a big issue in the Bible. Why do we have communion and the Lord's Supper? To remember. All the way through the book of Deuteronomy, remember, remember, remember. You could almost entitle that book, Remember. How long has it been since you were just desperate for Jesus? How long has it been since you felt his fiery gaze piercing your soul and exposing your sin? How long since you've hated sin with all of your being? The grace of Jesus has forgiven you, but remember from where you have fallen where from where you have fallen. The grace of God has forgiven you. Remember that you once were dead by reason of your trespasses and sins, but He made you alive together with Him. Remember that. Remember that by nature you were a child of wrath at enmity with God. Remember that. And that by grace you have been saved through faith and that not of yourselves. It is a gift of God, not by works, as any man should boast. Remember that. Remember where you were. Remember how far you have fallen. There's a song. I'm desperate for you. Little chorus that we sing sometimes. 
This is the air I breathe. I, I can't live without you. You can suck all the air out and I'll die. And without you, Lord, I'll die. How, many, how long has it been since we were really, really in that place? Lord, if you're not here, I'm a dead person. And I, I can't go on. So remember where you've fallen. Remember the passion and the love and the fervor that may have once been in your life. Then he says, repent. Turn away from the things that dull your appetite for God. I met a girl one time who... uh, If you gave her filet mignon or some really, really tasty meal, she would turn her nose up at it, preferring something from fast food or even from Circle K. Nachos from Circle K would be preferred over that. Her taste buds, her palate becomes so so dulled by garbage food that that's all she enjoyed and could not enjoy good food. She didn't eat it, but she didn't prefer it. She gave her the choice. What would you like? Nachos from Circle K with the fake cheese. And a hot dog, or would you like some fine cut of beef or chemical-free chicken or something? Nah, I don't need that. I'll take the hot dogs and the nachos with the fake cheese. Repent, turn away from the things that dull or suppress your appetite for the things of God. These may even be good things, things that steal time from your prayer, things that steal time from your scripture reading. They may be good things. Or maybe they're not even that. Maybe they're just neutral things. They're just things. The other morning I, I got up pretty early, earlier than normal. It was probably around four. And... Um, I just really sensed that I was just dull to the things of God, to the Word of God, and just like, just had no real passion for it. About 45 minutes later, I went back to bed, trying to get a little more sleep, and I'm laying in bed, and I'm saying, Lord, restore to me. What's wrong? What? What's that? We spent the time reading. Drudge report. I like the drudge report. Fox News. I like Fox News. And then over the amount of time we get into such things. So that's why you don't have, that's why your palate has been dulled. Those things aren't bad. They will dull your palate for the things of God. I had a friend of mine one time saying, you know, I'm in my car all day long. That's what my job has me doing. And I spend 
all day listening to talk radio, and I am so dull to the things of God, I need to change. You need to change. These things aren't bad. Look on them every once in a while. Don't ignore them. Find out what's going on in the world. But when they become a place where they dull your appetite for the things of God, it's time to put them in their priority. Have them in their right priority. Read about those people who are writing about godliness and good things and things that lift up our souls and things that challenge us in the spirit. So things that steal time for prayer, and it can even be, you know, our hobby. It can be a zillion different things. What is it that when you're lying in bed at night that you're thinking of? Is it your hobby, your craft? Repent. Because you've abandoned, you've left behind the things that, that you first loved. And do. Repent and do the things. Do the deeds you did at first. You need to be doing the kinds of things that people do when their hearts are aflame with love for Jesus. When Think about, remember when your love for Jesus was fervent. What did you do? Do those things again. He who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will grant that you eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Hear what the church, all the churches need what Jesus speaks. What this church needs is Jesus more than anything. We need to be faithful to Jesus. Hear what he says to us. And then he offers this promise. To him who overcomes, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Those who conquer, those who overcome, will enjoy the privileges that were lost to Adam and Eve when they rebelled. Just think. This is what he's promising. I'm promising you to eat of the tree of life, just like Adam and Eve did. And when they walked with me and talked with me, and they, they fellowshiped with me in the garden. And they had this close intimate relationship and I would come and walk with them. And because of the tree of life they had this beautiful privilege forever. Jesus says repent. He says remember, repent and do and I will provide for you. That same intimate close fellowship with me forever. And it will never be taken away from you. It will never be lost as it was in the days of Adam and Eve. You will never lose it. You will be my God. I will be your God. And you will be my people. And we will walk together. And you will never die. And I will never leave you. That's the promise. So I'll conclude with this. Jesus is very serious about his church. How serious is Jesus about his church when he died to purchase her? I think that's a pretty good indication. You know, what's interesting as I was thinking about this conclusion, that Jesus 
talks, and he talks to Peter, and Peter makes this great statement. <coughs> Jesus says this, and Peter, the gates of hell will not prevail against my church. But Jesus says, if you don't do, if you don't heed my words, I will snuff out your candlestick. The gates of hell will not snuff out this church. But Jesus can own church to church by making her go dark and no longer being alive. We need to be concerned about being faithful to Jesus, not being worried about whether or not what Satan may be able to throw. He can't do anything. Jesus, on the other hand, is the Lord of the churches. And he can unchurch a church. He can make us go dark. Gates of hell, they're not a threat. I'm not saying Jesus is a threat. I'm saying Jesus loves this church. Jesus is in our midst. And so we should probably ask ourselves what characteristic of the Ephesian church are evident in us. Are we doctrinally sound? Do we hate the deeds of the Galatians? Do we hate what Jesus hates and love what Jesus loves? Do we stand strong in the truthfulness of God's word? Have we abandoned the love that we had at first? And then how about you as an individual? Where are you? I can't answer that question for you, but that's something I will pray that God would do for you. Let's pray.